If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wendell Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. How far would you go to be with the love of your life? In 2003, in the midst of war in a country where homosexuality is banned, two Iraqi men met by chance and fell in love. It's an inspiring story of love, separation, and a long journey to America, one that would not have been possible today thanks to Donald Trump. The LGBT community lost one of its best and brightest on Saturday morning. Author, historian, gay activist Stuart Timmons passed away at the age of 60. We'll revisit an interview he did with us on the gay history of downtown L.A. And being history, every word is still true. Not all truth. <laughs> Wenzel and I will discuss our experience demonstrating at LAX yesterday. And we'll be joined live in studio by producer Sue Hamilton from Artists Rise Up Los Angeles, which is presenting for one night only E Pluribus Unum, a benefit performance in response to the election of the President of the United States. It's tomorrow night at El Portal in North Hollywood. But first, the national LGBT news from This Way Out. <laughs> I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm Danny Cruz. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending January 28, 2017. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, is suing a restaurant in Scottsdale, Arizona, for creating hostile work environments for a gay employee and an employee whom fellow workers thought was gay. The lawsuit alleges that the two waiters were repeatedly called faggot and sissy and sometimes physically assaulted by co-workers. When they reported the treatment to supervisors, they were told not to complain, lost tables and therefore tips, and were ultimately fired. The lawsuit seeks back pay and punitive damages. The EEOC has, since 2015 under the Obama administration, interpreted provisions in the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that ban sex discrimination to also ban bias based on sexual orientation and gender identity. While the EEOC is an independent agency, its members are chosen by the president. Donald Trump is expected to make at least two high-level appointments to the commission during his term. There's been no comment as yet from the White House about this week's EEOC lawsuit. The Trump administration got off to a flying, though not very LGBT-friendly, start this week, the 45th U.S. president's first full week in office. Thanks to an executive order Trump issued on January 27th, LGBT refugees fleeing ISIS death squads in Syria and Iraq will no longer find refuge in the United States. 
Citizens of Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Yemen are also barred from entering the country. The move appears to be fulfilling a Trump campaign promise to ban all Muslims from entering the U.S. It's worth noting, however, that none of the violent jihadists who launched attacks in the U.S., starting with 9-11 and including the Boston Marathon bombing and the Pulse Massacre in Orlando, came from any of those countries. Another Trump executive order this week bans federal funding of international health organizations that provide abortion services. Activists and educators charge that the gag order will directly impact clinics in Kenya and Ethiopia that are among the few places in those countries that offer HIV-AIDS education. Dr. Amesh A. Adalja, a board-certified infectious disease physician at the University of Pittsburgh, told the Self.com website that this gag rule has the potential to severely curtail the path we're on to end the epidemic. It's bad public policy that can have a serious impact on the lives of people. Trump's first address to Congress will even disrupt the scheduled four-night broadcast on ABC of When We Rise, a much-anticipated TV miniseries about the U.S. LGBT rights movement. It's written by Oscar-winning Milk screenwriter Dustin Lance Black and stars Guy Pearce, Mary Louise Parker, Rachel Griffiths, Ivory Aquino, Carrie Preston, Michael Kenneth Williams, and Jonathan Majors. Whoopi Goldberg, Rosie O'Donnell, and David Hyde Pierce are among the guest stars. Milk director Gus Van Sant helmed the first two-hour episode. When We Rise was set to run on four consecutive nights from February 27th through March 2nd. But Trump scheduled his first congressional address for February 28th, which every major TV network will be covering. So tune in for the first episode of When We Rise on February 27th. You'll then have to wait until March 1st through 3rd to see the rest of it. And when asked directly by Chris Johnson of the LGBT Washington Blade newspaper earlier this week, Trump Press Secretary Sean Spicer said he doesn't know if the president plans to rescind Barack Obama's executive order protecting LGBT federal workers from discrimination. But finally, Barack Obama used his last day in office to issue a presidential memorandum to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service that will help transgender people entering the country. Statements from foreign doctors will now be accepted to verify an immigrant's chosen gender if that person wants to amend their official documents. A former officer who was jailed by the army for being gay was among dozens of people who received pardons from the president during his last week in office. The man had been unable to find work because his conviction made him a felon. The comprehensive section on LGBT rights maintained by the Obama administration has been disappeared from the WhiteHouse.gov website, as were sections on women's rights and climate change. The site now has just six sections, all promoting Trump and his policy positions. That's News Wrap for the week ending January 28, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Frances O'Brien. And I'm Danny Cruz.
Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Steve Pride recently sat with a gay Iraqi couple who worked for the USA during the war to talk about their harrowing, years-long struggle to get to America for a better life together. The story could not be better timed. My name is Nayef Harabit. My name is Batu Alami. Nayef, tell me about your life in Iraq. I was just a normal gay guy, and I cannot be myself there, and I I was studying in a fine art college, and after the war, I just worked with the U.S. Marines as translator. And what were you up to? After the war, he joined to the military and working with the collection forces. What was Iraq like for you when you were growing up? When did you know you were gay? I always know I'm gay, but it's not easy to be myself. With Iraq, with liturgies and the culture, it's too difficult to be yourself because you get killed or they torture you to make you example for the others. So I cannot be myself there. Anyone can judge you and kill you just to be a gay there, either your own family. It's only hiding. That's the only way, is just to be acting in front of people just to be the way how they want you to be, mm-hmm. but you cannot be yourself if you're a gay guy. And how did you become a translator? After the war, and I just was graduate from my college, and um, I was very interesting to learn more about the English, and I saw the troops was doing a foot patrol back in my area in the south, and I just asked them if I could work with them, and they test my English, which is I learned from the English movies and the music, and they said, oh, you know what, you could help us to training the new police, which is this was a very basic in the beginning as translator, and after that, I start learning more and more, and in 2003, when the war started, everyone was happy with Americans, especially in the south. The dangers come after the militias coming out. And the militias and the religious people, same for people, and anyone working with Americans is traitor. Those come here to get our home from us. All that poison thinking is what make us a target and make me, as translator, a target from a lot of bad people. How did you two meet? He worked in translator. I'm soldier. We not speak English. We don't understand American military. He translators talk with me and with everyone in Iraq military. I see him every day. Sometimes we need help. We talk to him. Excuse me, we need help. He translators with Marines military. The first time I saw him, I was sitting and it was very warm in the afternoon and he was coming out of the shower. And that's when the first time I saw him and, and I said, oh, my God, that guy is really hot. But I was never think he have a feeling to know me more like how I did. So I was just tried to be as a normal as as me and translate and doing my job. But one day we go mission together for clearing the general hospital from the terrorists. And in that mission, we stay in a home together like it was Iraqi battalion, which is his battalion, and American team, which is the med team and Marines and some also some bullies. And we sit in that home 15 days. So we was doing our patrols in a day. And at night we were sitting together and he started inviting me for dinner, lunches, and we start talking and talking till we know each other more. 
And after that, we just find out we in love together. Yeah, there we stay together, we eat together. And we start knowing each other, we start talking together, and that's how, how it started. Did you think he may be gay? I feel like inside, the same we, we call gaydar, but not easy. I talk to him, I like to you, or I love you, or I take you gay or not gay. This is not easy there. But after three days, my inside so strong, I did call to him and I talked to him, I love you. But I don't know what's going on after. He may be not gay. This is big problems, not easy. It's dangerous. But yeah, of course. My job in military, he and translator with Marines is not easy too. In government, family, friends, everyone, it's not easy, but I told him, I love you. He don't give me answer, just kiss me. He go back to room. After me, two days, I'm not eat anything. I think I forget and kiss. Uh, really beautiful feeling. It's amazing, sometimes weird. It's, crazy he is my life inside this is my dream really i left to him after that maybe month but i don't tell him i love you or i like you but this time we working together same place yeah after three days i i told so him. do you want me to tr translate some or no, you, you get it all okay yeah okay. but what about you so, um, your reaction so my reaction was I know I was sure if he's gay or not and and after this kiss I just know he want me I mean we could be together because he have the same feeling and so that mean he's gay you know and he w he went to vacation after that and after the vacation we just met and have more kisses you know and our relation stopped but same time it was very dangerous it was in American base and it's difficult for us to be together. It's difficult from the Iraqi soldiers, difficult from the American side. We cannot just be ourselves there. So we started going different cities to meet at the hotel there and keep meeting each other till I get out to come to the United States. Tell me about leaving. How did that come about? There is a program to help translators because their life in danger to help them to go and live in the United States, give them asylum. And I have friends, they already did that, so I applied for my asylum, and I got it after 11 months. And that's after decision, me and him, we take it is we need, because we heard about life outside Iraq and the serious queer as folk. We saw there, there is a gay community, they can be themselves, because the way how we was living in Iraq, we not have a lot of touch with the other words. We thought it's the same things. No one was accepting any gay. But after I saw that series with the five seasons, which is my favorite till now, and I said, oh, my God, we could be ourselves. We could married. We could adapt kids. We could do a lot. That's the life I want. That's the life he's want. I just apply, and I just thought it's easy for him to come behind me. And they sent him visa. I told him my boyfriend, and he could come and live together. But it's not as easy about how I thought. If you'd known it would have been this difficult, would you have reservations about leaving? Yes, because there's no life for us there waiting. Is Either we and me and him get married and just get separate, or maybe still meeting each other 
in a hiding place like a lot of other friends, they're still doing it. Or they find about the relationship and they killed us. So there is no future for us there. And that's the only way we could do it. Talk about the incredible journey he had to go through to get over here. It's take us five years of process. When we apply with the UN, we know there's a lot of other people, but we thought they're going to take care of him just to be as a gay. But we surprised in his first interview, he said they not really care about gays here. They care about families more, which make us really sad and disappointed. This is not what we thought. You make it to the U.S., and he only makes it as far as Lebanon. Then what? Because his background, because he'd been in military, they start just to reject him because they think he says he was a witness for torching. And in the same time, he was uh, legally there. So he cannot go anywhere because a lot of checkpoint in that country. And also, in any time he cut, he will send back to Iraq, which is there you know about our relationship and they will kill him. This is Steve Pride, speaking with Batu Alami and Naref Heredid. Naref, a translator for the U.S. military, and Batu, a soldier in the Iraqi army, faced persecution and possibly death if they stayed in their homeland. But immigration was a rough road, and after obtaining a visa, Naref was forced to leave his love behind, settling in Seattle, with the determination to one day reunite with Batu in a place where they could express their love freely and without fear. What was it like leaving him behind? I come here and it's, it's shock, it's beautiful, it's very gay-friendly. They have a very good LGBT community there. It makes me sad because I'm not here with him. I'm here without him and he's still there with all that situation. And I always feel I'm guilty. I'm the one put him in this, which is make me feel not happy. And any time I meet friends, or they say, let's go to the party. They enjoy it, I not enjoy it, because I'm thinking about him. He should be with me. We should be enjoying it together, not just me. And that was make me sad, which make me calling him, taking him picture every time. I felt that bad, and I felt like we decided to go out together, but he's staying in this cage back in that country, and I'm here free, so... We just communicate together all that time by Skype, night, days, you know, watching each other, how we sleep, eating together by putting the plates in front of the camera. I eat breakfast, he eat dinner. And we keep in touch all that time, which is make our relationship more stronger. He know everything's about where I go, what's about my life and everything. And I know everything's about him and how he's feeling, you know. So that will help us to have a hope we can get together. Batu, what was it like for you? And take your time. Speak Arabic and I can translate, okay? Okay. okay. Most difficult, we have different times. We have, there is a night there and there is a sun here, which is make us feel we more farther away from each other. But he said by the sky, by we having a touch together every single day, every moment we free, that will make us have a hope. We will make that time going together and we're going to be in the same time. We now have to live separate by different times. They already say no and we was very hopeless. I almost decided to go live in Lebanon with him 
and whatever is happening to us will be heaven because there is no hope anymore for him to come. There is a hope for us to get together, but not here in the United States. So I just decided to go there. So how did Batu get out? How Batu get out is we heard about Canadian programs called Five Sponsor, which is if you know five Canadian people, they could sponsor you and help in you and take care of you so you could get to immigrate to go living in it. So we go there and we met the Rainbow Refugee uh, Organization and the United Church of Canada, and they work with it, and they was very nice people, and they do his paperwork. And after six months, the Canadian embassy in Lebanon, they ask him about his first interview, and he get accepted in his first interview. They not focus his military life, they focus about his gay life, which is make it much easier for him to understand what he go through. Well, tell me about the meeting, the reunion. The big moment is in Canada and Vancouver when he get out of there. So we know he's coming. I went from Seattle to Vancouver Airport in Canada, and I was waiting, and I was like, is that really happening? Is that really he's coming? We're going to have the same time. We're going to hold each other. We're going to go to places together. You know, we're going to eat together. We're going to have to use the Skype because I'm really tired from Skype. It's been five years just Skyping every single time. All my breaks, my lunches at work, wherever I go, I have to hold the Skype. And I'm tired from it. I need to hold him, not hold the Skype. So when I saw him, he was wearing a T-shirt with a picture of me and him. And he just came and I called him, hey, baby, you know. I not believe it. He's here. And for him, he's take him like at least a week to feel like he's really here. And I keep visit him every single week for a year and a half. Every single week. Uh, we get married in Vancouver first, just for the paperwork. And I get my citizen. And in that time, it's much easier for me to make him come and live with me in the United States. And we do our paperwork, and they ask us for an interview back in Montreal. So we fly all that way to Montreal, and it was 27 below the zero. And in 10 minutes, she said, after she asked me a question, ask us both, and she told him, you've been accepted to the United States. Just 10 minutes. We've been waiting five years to hear that. I want to scream. But I could because it's a lot of people and I'm in the embassy. So he said, just wait till we get out. And I just get crazy and scream and, and keep screaming. And he take me to the room and I keep screaming and screaming because this is what I've been waiting all that years. You know, it's finally it's heaven. Finally it's heaven. Finally, we he going to come and live with me with the place we would like to live in. And that's how is it. That's how it, my feel. And it was March 6, 2015. And I come in the morning, and we get the passport with the visa, and we come and we surprise all our friends with Betu. And after that, we get married in August. Eight. August 8. What's your life like here in the States now? Oh, my God. It's much, much better. I feel I'm the most happy in person now. I can focus in my art. I can focus in my work, which is I already get new position as a manager in home decor and when I see Betu working and going to school and excited and people like us about how we RP that's the place called home we love Iraq we never want to leave Iraq but we cannot live with people they don't want us to live there who want to kill us and make us example and torture us those people still there they're not lucky 
they have in all that and they still have in it and we have to do something for it our home here in, in the united states we now help eight or nine people we help them we need help more 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 so we working with uh, we make a group is called new life we make it since we was in canada the group is between canadian americans and a lot of iraqis we already sponsor eight lgbt people from iraq we help them to find a job give they stand tell them about the culture teach them how they use the bus you know so our message is that's the kind of help is not should be money just do whatever you could to help those people to get in their feet and help them to know more about this community here because i have a lot of friends they come here and they shock is different culture is not easy for you live all of your life back there and you come here and you yes is better is free you could be yourself but it's still different it's still not home it's still not the language and most of those people they're not speaking english so we need the people here helping them to get in their feet same for me before i'm not speaking english never now it's fine not 100% but i'm understand something now my life here my home here i love him he my family what is it about him that you love the most galaxy اكثر شيء بي everything this has been a conversation with ayef harabin and batu alami this is the pride Thanks for listening. And a documentary about their love story airs tonight at 10 p.m. on the Logo, Logo Cable Network. And if you miss it on TV tonight, you can still watch it online at LogoTV.com. And I believe you've already seen this, haven't I you, Abby? I did. I, I loved it. I, first of all, these guys are so handsome. Yeah. Like they just, they're like, you'd cast them for the roles of them. That's, um, that's usually my observation. Yes. Well, I, I could not <laughs> help but notice. And you see them in their relationship is essentially via Skype. And it's, it's very dear. I cried through the whole thing. Um, and of course, when I watched it, we hadn't seen things come down like what came oh down my. this week. Yep. And it really, really demonstrates that even under Obama, yep. how difficult it yep. was to get in here as a refugee. So these oh, yeah. these guys are brave, and I really would like to see what they're doing now. I know. I'm going to go home and watch this. <laughs> Still to come, the late Stuart Timmons on the gay history of downtown Los Angeles. And producer Sue Hamilton from Artists Rise Up Los Angeles. And Wenzel and I will compare notes on our experience at El... Yesterday's LAX demonstration. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Disney legend Howard Ashman, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The Disney animated classics The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast won numerous awards. They were musical collaborations by Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Tragically, Ashman became terminally ill with AIDS during his work on Beauty and the Beast. He kept his diagnosis hidden, fearing that friends would shun him. In 1992, Beauty and the Beast won an Oscar for Best Original Song. Since Ashman had since died, his life partner, Bill Louch, accepted the award on his behalf. In an emotional speech, Louch said it was, quote, the first Academy Award given to someone we've lost to AIDS. During the film's credits appear these words, to our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, John DeBoer. Hi, I'm Randy Barbado. Hello, I'm Fenton Bailey, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. You weren't even born. Stick to the text. Okay, sorry. Stay on They said it was going <laughs> to. On KPFK FM. 90.7 Los Angeles. 98.7 Santa Barbara. 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake. 93.7 San Diego. Or streaming online at kpfk.org. I am Welcome back. You are listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. And Abby and I went to a function. Yeah, we went to a function. And I just want to say it's a big deal when you get people in this city on a Sunday to go down to LAX when they don't have to. I know. That was an amazing thing unto itself. And and we actually were there at separate times. I was there early in the day when it was somewhat small and it didn't have a lot of focus. And then I left, and then Abby was posting. We were right near each other and didn't realize it. We didn't even see each other. Because in her pictures, I thought, I know everybody standing around you. (laughs) But then it got much bigger. So what was that like? It kept getting bigger. And I felt this sort of freeze on the air. You know, Mm -hmm. if you were there, there was a moment when it was not just a static demonstration that filled up all the sidewalks, every available inch in front of Bradley. Then it spontaneously turned into a march. And I was actually standing in the center parking lot looking down and sort of watching watching this, you know, like like, you know, cracking it cracking an egg. Everything started moving down and going into the main street. And I thought, oh, that's great. And I went and joined it. And I could feel that this was and I could as I was walking by the cops, I could tell that the cops were absolutely on edge. Right. And this was more than they were expecting. And I could feel this sort of electricity in the air like you know, something could go very wrong here. Right. Well, see, that's what, that, when I was there, I was thinking we had probably reached about as many people as we were going to get. And then about an hour into it, I realized these people are flooding in. Yeah. I mean, every time you looked up, it was just groups, clumps of people coming to join you. At which point I thought, well, if I go home now, they won't miss me. (laughs) (laughs) There was a point at which I saw a protester directing traffic because the cops seemed so um, overwhelmed. Um, The march that happened went all the way around. It started at Bradley, went all the way around, came, stopped at Bradley Mm -hmm. to a line, a cordon of cops, and people spontaneously started a sit-in. That was the point at which I I, I was, I got to say, I wasn't that comfortable with stopping, shutting down the airport, so I went home. But the crowd was, I mean, at least in my experience, like the march the week before, very well behaved. Yeah. I mean, they were they were accommodating. They made sure that people had room to exit the terminal when they mm-hmm. needed to get out because, I mean, it was an open airport. There were passengers coming and going, but uh, they were they were pretty focused about getting their message across. Well, it made me start thinking, okay, I think these marches and demonstrations are going to be a way of life for the time being. And so... Right now, we're all sort of riding on this positive energy, and we're in it together. But 
you know, the things that like the, the attorney general thing that happened today. And now there's rumors I know, getting that, rid of the attorney general. Yeah, there's going to be a there's there are rumors that there's going to be an executive order rescinding Obama's LGBT protections. You know, things are happening right. so fast and furious. I, I wonder how we're going to stay focused on what we're protesting and what we're going to do. Like, is it OK to shut down the airport? I, I don't know the answer to that. I, nor I. But but the thing is, you're right. We we have to stay focused because I think getting everybody unfocused may be, this sounds so terrible, maybe the plot. But, maybe that's it. <laughs> no, well, I think there will always be people trying to defocus. Right. There's so much going on. It's real hard to pin anything down because you think, OK, let's, let's talk about this. And then something else comes down and then yeah. something else. And this is... Every single day. And it's only been two weeks. I know. It feels like the end of the first Nixon administration already. I think it's time for us to start brushing up on our nonviolent protest tips from people like MLK and Gandhi. But that's just me. And if we've learned anything in the past week, it is an appreciation of history and the people that came before. And when it came to gay history in the city of Los Angeles, there was only one person on our speed dial... Stuart Timmons spent most of his life telling the story of gay Los Angeles. He wrote the biography, The Trouble with Harry Hay, founder of the modern gay movement, and was the co-author of Gay LA, a history of sexual outlaws, power politics, and lipstick lesbians. In 2006, we spoke with him about that book, specifically about the gay history of downtown Los Angeles. Everything begins in downtown L.A. That's where the city of Los Angeles started, and that's where the earliest traces of gay life can be started going back into the 1800s. There wasn't really a movement at that point, but there was gay life, what I think is best to call the gay underground. You certainly see more traces of it with men because they would get into trouble with the criminal justice system, with sexual running around. You see it in more cultural ways and have to assume it with women who often would uh, wind up being revealed as women who were living, dressed, and working as men. They were known as women who passed. And there are a surprising number of those cases in L.A. as well. So you find you know, bits and pieces and glimpses of the fact that there were lesbian and gay and transgender people in L.A. going back as far as city history goes. In fact, from the very beginnings, the Native American people who lived here, the Gabrielino Indians, had a word for gay and lesbian people, we believe, based on the fact that most Native American tribes in the area had initiation ceremonies for lesbian girls and gay boys who were adolescent who would choose this life voluntarily and go through an initiation ceremony just as heterosexual uh, kids in those tribes would go through an initiation ceremony to in some ways, you might say that the Native Americans had the most enlightened gay-positive society that ever has been seen in Los Angeles. Are the downtown gay landmarks still there? Some. Things are changing so rapidly and have forever. L.A. seems to be a city that uh, almost gleefully tears itself apart and rebuilds itself. And downtown has been sort of ground zero for that. But the historic plaza area certainly had a certain amount of gay activity. 
there is a building still standing where there were masquerade balls that were held by the uh, sex industry, the uh, prostitution business, which was entirely legal and very popular at that time. No less than the LA Times wrote up an attack saying that prostitutes of both sexes made the night hideous with their orgies at this one place. This was in the 1880s, right around where the Pico House Hotel is and right near there. It's just remarkable. There also is the earliest so-called vice area. It was sort of a slum. It was known as Calle de los Negros, which meant Street of the Dark Ones. It had a very impolite name that was used for years. It was known as the place where uh, there was no vice too vile that wouldn't take place there on a daily or nightly basis. So I believe that area was probably L.A.'s first West Hollywood. It takes real imagination, but once you're down there and actually on the streets looking around, you can begin to get a sense of how the city grew and where the queer people could be found. There were also a lot of boarding houses on Main Street. Boarding houses were often known in in that turn-of-the-century era as often having collections. They were usually sort of uh, gender-segregated men's boarding houses and women's boarding houses. And in some of the men's boarding houses, they were known to be little gay enclaves They were only known for that when a scandal erupted and then there was an arrest record and a trail. I often say that a successful homosexual in that period was the perfect criminal because it was a crime to have any kind of gay activity and you had to leave no trace and never be caught. So it takes a lot of digging to dig up this history, but uh, working on Gay LA with Lillian Faderman, we found an awful lot of it. And in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, Pershing Square was known as really the first stop for anyone who was gay who would uh, visit from anywhere in the country, certainly uh, among men. John Retchie paints a fabulous portrait of Pershing Square and what it was like in the late 50s and early 60s in his novel City of Night. And that certainly was based on firsthand experience. And there are other writers who've written accounts of it around Pershing Square and adjacent Bunker Hill before it was all bulldozed and turned into mocha and a lot of big business buildings, there was a real high concentration of these single-room places where single men lived, and a lot of those single men were gay. Pershing Square had been sort of a free speech central area where anarchists and socialists and fundamentalist Christians and old Jewish chess players would sit around and talk all day long. And a lot of the ladies around Pershing Square were not ladies at all. They were either drag queens or actual transgender people and lived very openly trolling for servicemen during World War II and trying to pick up any boyfriend who could buy them a 15-cent lunch at Clifton's Cafeteria. A hundred years later, is DTLA still a gay destination? What's so fascinating is that it's come full circle. Downtown has a thriving LGBT population these days. 
I did a reading at a bookstore called Metropolis, which is down on 4th Street, just a stone's throw from where some of the seediest gay bars from the mid-century were, Harold's and the Waldorf, which have been replaced by a big parking structure now. But there were just a room full of gay people who came to this reading who are new, loft-dwelling downtown residents. There was a guy there who says that he's... uh, selling real estate hand over fist to gay and lesbian people downtown. The the boom is really on, and because downtown has finally sort of started to pull together its urban infrastructure, there's a big city downtown life there that's very, very appealing to a lot of people, and there's so much going on culturally that, of course, it's a fit all those museums and galleries, and now there's a grocery store. So uh, there's a lot going on. But L.A. was so central to the entire gay movement in the United States and in the world, and it's been overlooked. It's a really fascinating historical riddle to solve. Everything is quite a revelation when you really look closely at it. That's one of the things about history in general and about L.A. I think particularly L.A. has always had this emphasis on being new and fresh and young. And that's great, but there is a background to things, and it's very helpful to learn the background, and there are a lot of surprises in in what you learn when you really start to look. This was from our 2006 conversation with activist, author, and gay historian Stuart Timmons. In the years since we recorded that interview with Stuart, the Metropolitan Bookstore has been replaced by a hair salon but a number of LGBT nightclubs and businesses have opened downtown, and DTLA has never been gayer. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. When you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help, I know. Downtown, just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. Stuart Timmons passed away on Saturday morning at the age of 60. He was a remarkable man, and everyone at IMRU mourns his passing. But now, joining us in the studio is producer Sue Hamilton of Artists Rise Up Los Angeles. Her, and her wife, Heidi Gott, who some of you might know from the Broadway production of Mamma Mia. And they're here to give us the 411 on E Pluribus Unum, a benefit show at El Portal in NoHo in response to the election of the President of the United States. So welcome, Thank Sue. You. Welcome, Thank you so Heidi. Much. Happy to be here. So this came so quickly at... How did it happen? It How did, did you get this together so quickly? Because it's huge. Well, it had to be quick for a couple of reasons. Uh, there is a gentleman in uh, New York named Jonathan Alexandrados, and he started immediately uh, the month of national outrage, Theater Artists Unite. And he said, it's January. And so we said, okay, great. We had started Artists Rise Up Los Angeles and Artists Rise Up New York with Jessica Litwock. And we said, we are going to make sure that we are part of this national month of outrage. Only a month? Yes. Okay. 
We just squeaked in on the last day. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right. So how did you recruit your artists, though? Because you've got quite a selection. It's not just it's not all it's not all cabaret singers or anything like that. No, that's correct. So the short story is on November 9th of 2016. I, like so many of us, woke up in utter disbelief at what was going on. And I sort of drifted throughout my day. I said to Heidi, no social media for me. I'm not doing it. I can't do it. (laughs) And then at about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, after I'd been quiet all day, I texted her and I said, oh, reminder, I'm going to Shia, our 13-year-old daughter's performance at school. And I went and I sat down and the show started and it was about 40 12, 13, 14-year-olds doing original work that they'd been working on for months, and here they were uh, performing it on this date. And I was watching it thinking, well, duh, I have to do something, Mm -hmm. and this is what I know how to do. So that night I got home and I put a note on Facebook, and by the morning I had two or 300 people that wrote to me and said, I'm in. Wow. I'm in. Do you think these are people that are the kind of people who are used to doing art in response to something? Or is this a wave of kind of people thinking of themselves as activists I think all of a sudden? That's a great question, and I think it's both. I think at our first meeting, which was four or five days after, we had many people who came, and I would say, who are you and why are you here? And they would say who they were, and I'm an actor, I'm a director, a writer, or so forth. And then they would say, and this is my first time actually ever thinking of myself as an activist. And I have to be here and I have to rise up with you. And we just had a lot of passion, including Heidi. Yeah, it was incredible, the response. Because basically, you know, we just started by reaching out to who we knew. Our and you know everybody. We know everybody. You do. Well, now, <laughs> yes, yeah, of course. Uh, and now we know more. Um, so yeah, that that's how it started is we just reached out to people we knew and said, we're upset. We want to do something about this. And they just said, I'm in, I'm in. Hey, can I invite a friend? I've got this great friend that does this. And oh, I know somebody. Can they come? And so we basically, it was just kind of by referral. And we just, it quickly grew and grew to this incredible group of, I mean, really a diverse group of artists, writers and singers and dancers and poets and and, and is it going to stop with the month of outrage, or are you going to no. continue as an entity, as, as Artists Rise Up Los Angeles as an entity? Absolutely. So we are already planning our next date sometime in the spring. It will probably be at a different venue. It will probably look and feel a lot differently. But the goal is to really encourage people to keep writing, to keep writing these thoughts down. I see a lot of people on Facebook and social media saying, oh, my gosh, this is the news of the day. It's all terrible. It's all horrible. And while that could be true, my answer is, come on over here and rise up with us. Write it down. Write it down. Dance it down. Sing it down. Put it down. Let's show it. Let's get it out of our systems. And what that does, of course, is it starts the process of healing, community, looking across the room at someone who you've never met and seeing in their eyes, you're just like me. So one of your first efforts or or presentations of all this wonderful energy is E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. So who are some of the people we might know who are going to be on the bill tomorrow night? We're really excited about our uh, our lineup tomorrow night. Terry Ray is a friend of IMRU. Terry Ray, yes. yes. Terry Ray wrote a beautiful piece called Vote, Ooh. Uh, which is very fun. I'm not going to tell you much about it, but it's very Terry Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had the very good fortune to work with a couple of the cast members 
of Broadway's Hamilton. I haven't heard of that. No. <laughs> it's Sue's last name. It's not easy about her. It's very easy to spell. Uh, they came out and they restaged for us with local dancers a beautiful piece called America, which they presented at the Gypsy of the Year Awards this year. Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS, and they did this presentation, which is gorgeous. It is a dance piece, text, spoken word, live music, and it was choreographed by Carla Garcia from the cast. Oh. And she came out and has done a beautiful job. It won the award this year at Gypsy of the Year. One of our producers, Jose Rostrepo, said, hey, what if we invited them out here? How does that feel? And I said, Amazing. It feels oh, and amazing. For, and for those who don't know, Gypsy of the Year is a celebration of all those people who work Broadway in the chorus, the, the gypsies. And they and they have and there's a gypsy robe. It's it's a big deal. Yeah, yes. and it's Just, a big fundraiser. Yeah, yeah. They do two a year yeah. and they get money from the audience all for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS and it culminates in this incredible show where all the Broadway shows can create a number, any kind of number yeah. that they want for the show, and they're fantastic. And, and this one won the award of all the shows this year. And then, Heidi, you're singing with the handsome and talented Robert Yakko, a special number, I believe. I am. Uh, this We are doing a, a song that Jason Robert Brown wrote the day after the election. Wow, in that's response. Fast. Yeah, the morning. He woke up also in shock, as we all did, and he actually wrote a song. And um, he has worked with Robert, so he, Robert mm. knew about this song immediately, and played it for me and it's gorgeous and very yeah. heartfelt because it yeah. is exactly about that next day and it's just a beautiful song and he was is gracious it parade gorgeous me. or last five years gorgeous i mean there's a lot of jason yes. robert brown style yes, yes. it is Yes, it yes. is. Hopefully yeah. it's not the next four years gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. So beyond E Pluribus Unum, what next? Are you even looking that far yet? Are you just trying to get your we are. On straight? We are looking to next. Uh, we've already started a, a division, if you will, called Arula Experimental. And this would be an opportunity for people to really start to showcase their in-progress works. What we're going to see tomorrow night is pretty polished, a lot of beautiful work that is fully rendered. But for the future, we'd like to give a lot of different people the opportunity to get their work out there and to develop it and see where it goes. So folks who want to get involved, how yes. can they find out? Oh, they can write to us at artistsriseupla.com. Arula. It's your own website. Yes, we have our own so, website. So the, the the purpose of the artist in a situation like this, do you think it's to reflect the anxiety of the audience? Do you think it's to help them work through their feelings? I mean, it seems like there's so many ways to go. And I, and I, I just, I mean, I don't know. Clearly, there was a question I started with, and I've lost it. What's Please the role of the it? artist right now? I think it's both, <laughs> don't you? Both. I mean, I think a lot of this material is was created as a result of sort of the sadness, depression, shock. Um, but uh, a lot of well, the, a lot of the purpose of our show too, and that's why we are having we're benefiting five different organizations, and we're fortunate enough to have four of the five um, present at the show, and so they'll be available for a post-lobby reception to talk to people who are interested in activism or interested in volunteering. And the, and the show has a has a big part of it that's all about positivity and how can I feel better and how can I get more active, not just I feel terrible, let's sing about it. And know? one of the beneficiaries is the ACLU, right? Because mm -hmm. yes. I was reading today, they've, 
they've had so many millions in donations in the past, like more than the past three years put together. But they need to hire lawyers. Well, they yes. got their work cut out Incredible. for them. Incredible, yes. Yeah. They, they will be with us tomorrow night. And who else benefits from this? We've got the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Mm-hmm. They will be present. HRC, of course. And uh, the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Neural Pro-Choice. Neural Pro-Choice, unfortunately, does not have an office in L.A., so they will not be present, but they will still be getting 20% of our proceeds. Well, and and for family members of mine who say to me, oh, get over it. Today we were reading the paper, in the paper online, that uh, apparently they're now going to set about stripping the LGBT federal employees' rights. Mm. We don't know this for sure. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't. It's not done yet. But, I mean, the fact that is even on any table anywhere. Yes. It's so appalling, yeah. and that's why we have to get out there and just keep singing so, and yes. dancing. Keep singing Doing, and dancing. Do what you do is, is what I'm starting to think more and more about. Well, thank you guys so much for coming tonight. Thank Thanks you for, for having, having us. us. I can't believe you're here in the flesh. I know. I'm looking at Heidi <laughs> Gott delighted. up close. That was Sue Hamilton <laughs> and Heidi Gott. And uh, check out Artists. Oh, I've got, okay, what is it again? Artists Rise Up Los Angeles. Check out what they're doing. And that's I'm at excited. 7 o'clock tomorrow night. At the 7 p.m., not 8. 7 okay. p.m. All right. So, That's important. It's a school night. And come back. Keep us posted. Well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's producer, Steve Pride, tonight's director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op, Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. We close with a song about a phrase that's only a week old, but already defines our unreality. From the brilliant Randy Rainbow, here's Alternative Facts. Good night. night. You're saying it's a falsehood, and Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point... Wait, what? Are you out of your mind? Are you totally gone? Is your weave in too tight? Is there booze in your cup? Are you pulling my leg? Are you putting me on? Cause alternative facts are facts that aren't facts. They're just facts you made up and called facts. You can't just make up facts if the facts are not facts. They're alternative facts. They're not facts. They're alternative facts. Was the crowd big or small? Did you see it or not? Is he building a wall? Is he scared of a leak? Is he tweeting too much? Does it seem like a lot? Can you answer a question without double speak? Cause alternative facts are not really facts. They're just facts. You made up facts or facts. Guess what? Alternative facts are not actual facts. They're not factual facts. They're not facts. They're alternative facts. Alternative facts are better than facts. You can slip through the cracks. You don't have to pay tax. You can break all your pacts and deny all the hacks. Cause alternative facts are not actual facts. Oprah Winfrey's my dad, and the moon's made of cheese. And I just started sleeping with Shia LaBeouf. And my dog is my cat, and I'm half Japanese. And I'm 18 years old, but don't ask me for proof. Cause alternative facts aren't actually facts. They're not facts, they're fantastical facts. They're absolutely not facts. They're just alternative facts, which aren't actually facts. They're not facts, they're not facts. Does Melania Trump? Really sleep upside down Does the hair on his head Match the hair on his back Do you 
look in his eyes when you polish his crown. Was your outfit from Gucci or the Toys R Us rack? No, that's just flat out false. <laughs> you can laugh at me all you want, but I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't laughing at you, sweetie. I was coughing. Alternatively. Anyway, I'm sorry. What What was it you were talking about? Alternative facts. They're not facts. They're fantastical facts. They're absolutely not facts. They're just alternative facts, which aren't actually facts. They're not facts. They're not facts. Alternative facts.